Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. An anatomy of truth-telling with a politician, a journalist, a scientist and a poet. This event took place on the 22nd of October 2013 at Westminster Abbey in London. Tonight we're going to consider the anatomy of truth. What it is, what it isn't, where it is. Who tells it, who doesn't, how it's told. Whatever we may think about truth, the fact that there are 600 of you here to join the conversation tonight says one thing loud and clear, truth matters. To help us consider the subject in depth and breadth, we have a panel representing four different walks of life in which truth certainly matters. Our politician is the Right Honourable Jack Straw, MP of 34 years standing and government minister for 13 of those years. The man actually in the arena, marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, but who spends himself for a worthy cause. Thus said Roosevelt, quoted by Jack at the beginning of his memoirs. Public service is a worthy cause indeed, and we have a valiant defender of its truth in Jack. Our journalist is Sir Max Hastings, former editor of The Telegraph and Evening Standard, reporter for many years and respected historian to boot. Not actually in the arena, but by his own account, a privileged spectator of the divine comedy. Self-knowledge like that betokens honesty, and we look forward to hearing the truth about being a journalist. Our scientist is Lord Winston, internationally known for his work on assisted reproduction, less well-known for his early stage role as Ethiopian fangirl to Jonathan Miller's Cleopatra a superb communicator of the excitement of science and the curiosity of scientists, Robert does his profession a grand service in making us all so interested in it. Our poet is Wendy Cope. Wendy makes me laugh out loud. Her poetry is simple, direct, cutting, powerfully true. What better voice than hers to tell us what truth is in art. Please welcome all our panelists.
So, uh, the way the evening is going to go is this. Each of our panelists is going to have about 20 minutes in the spotlight standing at the lectern next to the sign selling, saying, telling the truth. And the evening will pr proceed through questioning. Uh, I will ask a question uh, to which Jack, in the first instance, will respond, then invite the other panelists to ask questions, and then ask you to ask questions for about 20 minutes for each of the speakers. And then we should have some time at the end for a few more questions from the audience. So I hope you'll participate. I also hope, if you want to follow the debate on Twitter, uh, that you will, please follow at WABBY, that's W-A-B-B-E-Y, and at Intelligence2, and use the hashtag IQ2Truth. Jack, would you like to come to the lectern? Your context is that most people, 80%, think that politicians lie. You, I think, would maintain you have never lied in your parliamentary career. What then is truth to a politician? Uh, thank you. Um, in Cancer Ward, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, if decade after decade the truth cannot be told, each person's mind starts to roam irretrievably. One fellow countryman becomes harder to understand than Martians. Solzhenitsyn was writing about the Soviet Union, about a system which became sustained by deception of its moral purpose, its achievements, and by the self-deception of those in charge. In the end, this system finally imploded under the weight of its own lies. Truth has to be the, at the centre of any political system so that the, the citizen is able to exercise informed choices where they may very well come to different conclusions. But those conclusions will be based upon different interpretations of common perceptions and understandings. But truth, Claire, has many facets. For example, facts, judgments and feelings. Solzhenitsyn was speaking partly about the continued errors of facts, indeed of straightforward lies, about factory production, crime rates, the integrity of the ballot, almost everything else, which became endemic uh, in the Soviet system. Factual accuracy is a fundamental duty of the politician in a democracy. And within this envelope, the integrity of official statistics is of critical importance for statistics are the currency of modern political debate. And if this currency is debased, we enter the world of Solzhenitsyn's Martians. For a decade or so after I went into the House of Commons, there were constant arguments about the accuracy of something pretty simple to count, the numbers of people unemployed. Uh, and it was said that the definitions had been changed 18 times, for they were determined by ministers. Today, there are still arguments about the weight to be placed on unemployment figures, but remarkably few about the integrity of those data. And that's because the Office of National Statistics, with the UK Statistics Authority behind it, has been put on a wholly independent basis. Equally welcome has been the Office of Budget Responsibility to adjudicate on government's budgetary plans 
and forecasts. And both these changes have raised the quality of the political discourse. And I can think of no situation where anyone should use statistics which they know or suspect to be unreliable or untrue. But are there circumstances where in public life it is right to withhold the truth or worse, to tell a lie? I think there are. Withholding the truth has to happen in many areas of national security, where the mantra of NCND, neither confirm nor deny, is necessary to protect the secret world, which in turn is there to protect us from terrorist outrages or other attacks upon national well-being. There are even some, albeit rare, circumstances where a minister may have to tell the opposite of the truth, i.e. to tell a lie, to achieve a greater good. I offer two. One is where someone's life is in imminent danger. The second, to protect the nation's economy from total breakdown. For example, in the era of fixed exchange rates, where a government has already decided to, to devalue. Ministers have to carry on saying they have no intention of devaluing until the very moment they're ready to make that announcement, because otherwise the whole of the nation's reserves will disappear. Devaluation conveniently moves me on from factual accuracy to judgments, and here the world of truth is more opaque. The truth is rarely pure and never simple, wrote Oscar Wilde, and he added modern life would be very tedious if it were. Politicians are no more immune from others, in fact, less immune, I suggest, from slipping into euphemisms, putting the best gloss they can on inconvenient facts. I've been guilty of this myself, but I've quickly found that, as a minister, wherever the truth was going to be difficult, the best policy was to get it all out as quickly as possible. Then there's the issue of feelings and truth. And here, I suggest, all of us are in a fog. The truth is often a terrible weapon of aggression, wrote Alfred Adler, the Austrian psychiatrist. What we are feeling may be true at the time, but if we were constantly to give vent to those feelings, social intercourse would become nigh impossible. Hypocrisy in such situations, sparing someone else's feelings, may not be such a bad thing. A little disingenuity here and there about what we feel may indeed help the world go round. Truth, of course, runs straight into the issue of trust. Michael Caine, quoting his fa father, once opined, never trust anyone who wears a beard, a bow tie, two-toned shoes, sandals, or sunglasses. As you see, I'm wearing none of these. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. So, um, Wendy, poet, do you have a question for our politician? I, do. Um, I, th I mean, it seems to me that politicians are often in a position where they can't say what they really think or feel because of collective responsibility, because of party discipline, and so on. And you know, I wonder if this. I mean, it seems extraordinary to me that so few politicians, and present company accepted, of course, but so few politicians actually any good at making speeches, where you think it would be the one thing they would need to be good at. And do you think this is partly because they can't actually be authentic and, and say what they really think often? They have to be careful. Well, 
Wendy, uh, you do have to be careful, particularly about what you feel about your colleagues. Exactly. Um, I mean, but all, I just suggest uh, um, that everybody else who works, belongs to any institution, has to be careful about what they feel about and, and say about their colleagues. I mean, so Max is an editor, um, and certainly when he was a junior reporter, he wouldn't have uh, gone around broadcasting what he felt about uh, his seniors. I have a suspicion that although the dean and, ch uh, and chapter here at the Abbey is full of uh, people who are closer to God than am I, uh, occasionally uh, members of the chapter fall from grace and have strong feelings about their colleagues. And uh, life would be very difficult if they were uh, to give vent to those. So we're no different from others. Collective responsibility is another reason why you have to uh, be careful about what you say. And you end up in a situation sometimes uh, where uh, you're having to explain a policy uh, which you not only don't support but actually argued against yeah. in cabinet. Now that also happens in other institutions and uh, institutions would fall apart if you didn't uh, maintain collective resp responsibility. But that of course can, can quickly run in to what you're talking about which is where people sound false. Yeah. Um, and I, I've tried to avoid that fate with rather to judge whether I have but I um, personally I'm still driven mad, I was at the time, by people who picked up the briefs which were produced by the teenage scribblers uh, inside number 10 um, and uh, were expected just to read them out. You could sometimes hear them on, when you were listening to the Today programme, reading out this rubbish uh, and these cliches which they'd learned. I think it's perfectly possible to maintain collective responsibility, which can include not saying what you really think in public about your colleagues and also having to subscribe to policies you don't have to agree with for the same reason, whilst actually using your own words and putting these things into your own language. And I think that's of absolutely critical importance. And then if people will listen to what you're saying, if it's what you are, are feeling down here, if they think you're just uh, following an auto cue, they'll turn off and so they should. Yeah. Uh, Robert, do you have a question? Well, I, I just wonder if you're being a little bit disingenuous, Jack. Um, Probably. <laughs> you are, without wishing to be a flatterer, I think are one of the most admirable politicians I know. Ah. But after all, you've had um, intimate knowledge of SIS, GCHQ. I, th I think they can't quite hear it with that. Uh, sorry, you can't. Well, the secret, yeah. serv the secret services yeah. and the intelligence services which affect our nation. Yeah. And there are times when, of course, as a politician, you've had to keep secret things which might be very important and be of great interest to the general public. Now, in a sense, keeping things secret is another form of not telling the truth, is it yes. not? Well, no, uh, I mean, certainly you cannot tell the whole truth. Yeah, I, as I say, and Claire kindly quoted, uh, I can think of no occasion in my uh, public life where I've, I've told a lie. Uh, and I think that actually is true for almost every um, working politician in this country, because the penalties is for telling lies uh, are that it's the end of your political career. Um, it's not that we're necessarily better than people in other systems, but the checks uh, on us are much tougher from the press, uh, uh, which is not deferential, and neither should it be and also within the House of Commons. Um, on 
as it were, the secret state, Robert. Um, yes, I, mean, I, was, I was responsible by turns for the security service MI5 and then for SIS, the MI6, and GCHQ. And so, of course, there's load, because you're operationally and legally responsible uh, for these services as Secretary of State, um, there's loads that you're doing at the time and also retain, which you can't possibly communicate to others. But that's, um, you, don't, you don't lie about that, you just have to say, I can't talk about it. Um, and it does lead to uh, curious situations, the most curious of which was uh, when um, somebody challenged me to my face uh, about uh, whether there was a wiretap on them. And of course, I, can't, I can neither confirm nor deny uh, that there was a wiretap on them, but uh, I almost gave them the wrong answer. <laughs> Max. I'm very glad, Jack, that um, I couldn't agree with you more, that we have to start by recognizing that truth is not an absolute. And I'm reminded of that while I've been sitting in this um, sublimely wonderful building, I was trying to remember the name of the Victorian skeptic uh, who suggested that there should be a sign outside every church in the land saying, important if true. <laughs> um, I've been having a, um, a little difference of opinion recently as a journalist with uh, the Secretary of State for Defence, Philip Hammond, that uh, I was due to lunch with a, um, a senior officer a few weeks ago, as I've been doing for about 45 years, and he suddenly said, I'm terribly sorry, there's a new rule that all such meetings with anybody involved with the media have to be signed off by the Secretary of State's office, and he's refused to sign it off. And I wrote to Hammond, and I said, this really is mildly ridiculous, uh, that after all these years of having uh, um, conversations with senior officers, which are intended to make people like me better informed uh, about what we write in the papers, um, that you're now suddenly in, in seeking to gag them. And do you really want to go to war over this? And he wrote me back a rather po-faced letter saying, there's been far too much leaking by all your military friends and we're determined to put a stop to it. But he said, um, of course, I would be very happy to see you in my office at any time uh, to um, explain and clarify anything you want. And I wrote back to him and I said, but the trouble is, Philip, although I don't regard you as an absolutely dishonest man, the chances of you telling me any portion of the truth about what's going on in the Ministry of Defence is absolutely nil. And this is a very common problem facing journalists um, with, in these sort of situations, ministers. And in one sense, Jack, I do think you are an honest and honourable man, which I would not say of a great many politicians. Max, what is your question? But I'm coming to that. But I mean, but my, my question is, do you believe the approach I'm talking about with Philip Hammond is, is by no means unprecedented or unique? Um, do you not think you're being a little disingenuous in suggesting you said you never told a lie and so on and so forth? But I would suggest that governments, it's part of the business of government to try and conceal as much bad news as you can from the wretched electorate. Well, look, what I'm talking about, I've never told a lie, and I, I distinguished that in, in what I said, uh, Max, was um, telling things, something which is factual, which I know to be untrue. Um, on this issue of bad news, um, there are, of course, Governments try to manage the news, um, and I mean, there are two views about how you do this. Um, one view is that you have a grid and you manage everything on the grid uh, and you maintain an iron discipline. Uh, and the other is that uh, this bad news will come out anyway. I mean, we just will. This is a democratic society. Uh, and 
if, 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 if there is bad news, it's frankly just better to get it out. Um, and of course I was subject to the grid and, and I mean certainly uh, when we were planning the next wonderful policy initiative taken by Jay Straw, uh, Minister, whatever, whatever this was, um, uh, I was anxious that I should get a clear run at it without bad news getting in the way. Um, but on, on, I also f uh, felt, um, I mean leaving aside the stuff which has to stay secret, that it was just uh, better uh, to get things out, say, if, if, if they were bad news, because they would, they would come out. Um, and I learned that as uh, quite an early lesson, because I went with my first 20 months as Home Secretary back in the late 90s. Uh, the Lord was shining upon me, uh, and uh, I had no problems at all. And then uh, everything caught up with me. But could we move from the, from the, the general to the, from the specific to the general? Yeah. Do you believe that most people in your trade, politicians, feel the same way about well, truth? I, th well, I think they vary. I think we've got, you know, we've got a spectrum, the same as you have in journalism or any other uh, a trade. Um, but this is, and, and there will be people like Philip Hammond who will try and uh, stop uh, generals from talking to you. Um, and I, I think that's kind of as, as hopeless as if I tried to stop the judges uh, talking uh, to the press uh, when I was Lord Chancellor. I mean, completely and utterly hopeless. Um, so so I, I, my advice to Philip when I see him is, is to forget it, because you're just, you know, you, you might live next door to one of these people anyway. <laughs> Well, I'd like to ask the audience if they have any questions for Jack. Yes, here. A microphone will be brought to you. If you mind standing up, that's great. Thank you. Mr. Straw, uh, you said that um, statistics is the currency of political debate. And it's also been said that there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. Do you think that um, in some cases, maybe, statistics is just another way of hiding the truth. Brief now, answer, please, Jack. Thank you. I, I know that, uh, I think it was Disraeli who said that, wasn't it? Um, but anyway, whoever it was that said it, I, it's, it's, um, I don't happen to believe it's true. Um, I mean, you have to be careful about how you interpret data. Uh, but we have some very fine statisticians in this country um, who both work on social and economic data, but also, for example, uh, work on medical data. Um, and they are their work and the integrity of their work is fundamental to our advancement. Um, and for sure, you have, there are caveats. You know, there have to be caveats about the crime rates, caveats about numbers of people unemployed, um, caveats about all sorts of epidemiological uh, data. But they are what is communicated in, in these data is not lies. Okay, uh, and we would be impoverished if we were not able have a debate based on reasonably accurate data. Thank you very much. Can we give Jack a round of applause for his time in the spotlight? <laughs> Max, would you take the stand, please? <laughs> there, may, there may be time for more questions to Jack uh, later in the evening. I'm going to take a step down because okay. I'm so far from the legs. <laughs> By all means. Yeah. I, I should say, um, it's quite interesting that we have a poet's corner we have a, a politician's aisle. Uh, we, have, we have Newton buried here and scientists memorialized all around this corner, but we don't have anything for journalists. Yeah, right. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. 
Well, I think that's absolutely right, because um, journalism always has been, and I've always will be, a rather disreputable business. Once when I was somebody who was applying to me for a job, they said, would you call this a gentleman's profession? And I said, absolutely not. It's a trade for cabs and bounders. Thank you. <laughs> let, me, let me just put my, the question I've written here, if I may. Uh, it's to the point. Journalists might be said to be the upholders of truth. On behalf of society, journalists seek it out, uncover lies, tell it, the truth, to the rest of us. And yet if I read a story in the newspapers and I know the facts, I invariably find it to be so angled as to be wildly inaccurate and certainly misleading. So what is truth to a journalist? I don't think, I'm always rather wary about um, any journalist uh, making any grand claim and calling ourselves seekers after truth and so on. Um, I do think most of the people, British journalism includes some of the very best and some of the very worst journalists in the world. Um, I've been lucky enough, well I've worked with some of both, but I, the sort of newspapers I've worked on, I have worked on some very good ones. And I was always very sorry when um, uh, Sir Brown Leveson was compiling his report. I was sorry he didn't meet a wonderful man called Don Berry, uh, now in his 70s, but who worked for me for donkey's years and before that on the Sunday Times, who was associate editor, he was a Yorkshireman, and I think he was one of the most honest men I've ever met. And Don would always ask two questions about any story we proposed to run in the Telegraph. Um, is it true? And if the means by which we discovered it uh, were reported in private eye, would we be embarrassed? And those are two very good questions. And we always regarded, I think all of us regarded Don as the sort of conscience of the paper. Um, and God, I wish that Leveson, Leveson gave a very vivid account of the worst of British journalism, but I wish that he had met um, some of the really rather admirable people who also work in the trade. But this difficulty, it's a, a very familiar exercise, it's a cliche, that um, if you stage a fake bank robbery, and two men run into the bank and come out shooting and take a couple of hostages and so on. And then you ask 20 bystanders to describe what happened. They will all give very different accounts of what happened. Um, what I've always, how I've always described our business uh, of journalism, and I may say I would in many ways extend that to what I do as a historian. We are in the business of attempting to do jigsaw puzzles with a vast number of the pieces missing. And I may say, in a good many cases, with a good many of the pieces willfully concealed by those in positions of power. And when I've had these sort of conversations uh, with politicians or captains of industry, I've said, yes, it's absolutely true that newspapers and television very often get it wrong, and I blush to think how often I've got it wrong. But if those of you who are in positions of power told us the truth more often, we might not get it, uh, get it wrong so often in our newspapers. Now, I don't actually hold it, against, uh, hold it against politicians and those in power that they, at the very least, conceal a great deal from us. That's their job. But the old definition of journalism, the best definition, that um, it's about trying to get into print the things that people in positions of power don't want to get into print is absolutely true. Um, but I think, you, I, again, all the best journalists I've known, although we are by our nature, just as politicians are, cocky by virtue of thinking anybody should want to read our words, I think there is a fundamental humility um, among, again, all the good ones I've known and recognizing the limitations of what we do. Um, we try, um, we often fail, but the only thing I'm absolutely sure of is that if we weren't there, blundering around, groping in the dark, um, 
for the fragments of truth, and they are only fragments of truth, that is the most we can ever aspire to get into a newspaper, then if government and uh, public institutions were just left to get on with it without that kind of scrutiny, then I do think uh, we'd be in a worse state. I could bring in Robert at this point because that's one thing to speak about um, uh, public uh, officers, but it's another thing to speak to perhaps uh, a scientist who will, I mean, we'll talk about it in the context of science in a moment, but who is interested in telling the truth um, and for the scientist to find what he has to say, uh, Miss Lowe, can I, can, can I just um, ask you to ask about that, Robert? I'm not quite sure what you wanted to ask, make me laugh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm just reminded of one of the great journalists who you of course will recall, Russell, who works during the Crimean War and sends back stories in spite of what Lord Raglan says about the terrible situation in which the British troops find themselves, worse than the French for example, possibly worse than the Russians, and that causes a huge stink. But there is an issue, of course, for Britain until Palmerston comes along, because, of course, is this a threat to national security and how is it handled? And I think, I haven't read Russell's reports recently, but what I remember was that there was, to some degree, a, a degree of exaggeration to get the message across, as there almost always is in good journalism, whether it's scientific journalism or uh, war journalism, whatever it might be, in order to get that message across, you have to grab the attention of the readership. I think a degree of passion is there. I mean, for instance, when I read the reports of war correspondents from Syria at the moment, uh, I feel that um, quite a few of them are going way over the top. And in their reports, when they're saying something must be done, they are failing to recognize the enormous difficulties in the path of government about actually identifying exactly what you do. But on the other hand, that passion is absolutely... I mean, I've been part of this myself, you know, when I was young and I was reporting from the Middle East or from Vietnam. How can you possibly see the sort of things you see in war zones without being deeply moved? And I look back, somebody said to me not long ago, would I like my reports from my young days as a war correspondent to be republished? And I looked at them and I said, absolutely not. I'm not ashamed of what, I, what we did, but the idea it had any lasting merit, almost everything we wrote was at least 20% over the top because we were so moved by what we were seeing around us. Um, and I would have thought that's inevitable. But the job of, theoretically at least, of editors and of governments back here is to lay off for the, the passion of those reports and try and answer that question more sensibly about, um, what do we, about what can we actually do. I do think it's one of the worst cries of journalists, something must be done. Wendy? Um, when I'm working on a poem, I take as long as it takes, as it needs, to make it as true and accurate as possible, and I don't have a deadline, right? And I'm wondering, what you feel about the fact that journalists often have to write in a hurry and they have a yep. deadline and whether this compromises their ability to really get it right. Of course it does because um, the oldest cry in the business is always we don't want it good we want it tomorrow yeah. and um, um, of course everything is a compromise it's a it's a rough draft um, but I was terribly impressed with, by something uh, I don't think he was the first to say it but I'm a devoted admirer as probably many of us are of Tom Stoppard and I heard Tom say the other day, he said the only indisputable truth is to be found in fiction. And of course, this is a profoundly important reality. 
And what we were discussing, I mean, for example, I've just written a book about 1914. This is something that happened 100 years ago. And yet, there are so many possible interpretations. And I've spent three years struggling to get at the truth. But other historians, uh, probably more distinguished than me, who've also spent many years, they've reached completely different conclusions. And you have to have this humility about understanding the limitations of truth. Of course, if somebody says, what did you do last night, or what? Um, it's, it's, you know, you, know you, you can give a truthful or an untruthful answer. Um, but if you're talking about great issues of, of history or even of current affairs, so many different interpretations are possible. There's the interpretation that government's going to put on them, there's the interpretation journalists. The real thing, I think the only thing that society is richly entitled to ask from its journalists as well as from its politicians, is that we put the evidence in front of you so that you can reach a conclusion. And again, to quote my hero, Don Berry in journalism, um, he said absolutely rightly that one of the worst vices of modern journalism is to start commenting on a story without having told the readers what the story is. And I remember absolutely vividly when I was editor of the Telegraph and there was outrage because the Irish government had refused to um, to extradite um, an IRA suspect to Britain. And everybody from Mrs. Thatcher onwards was absolutely livid about this. And we were starting to write a leader about this. And Dawn came in and he said, but we haven't told them exactly what the Irish minister's um, um, argument was about why he wouldn't extradite him. And Dawn insisted absolutely rightly that we published in full at the length of a whole page the um, Irish government's um, reasons in writing as to why they refused to extradite this man. And he was absolutely right. Um, but I say I would not aspire to say uh, that we are in a position very often to give you more than fragments of the truth. But I would say that we do have a duty to try and give you the evidence on which you can grope for the truth on your own account. Hmm. Jack? Yeah, Max, um, put to one side the relationship between the newspapers and those in public life, whether it's scientists or, or politicians. And it's, speaking for politicians, we have to just put up with the press we get. But, I, but sometimes uh, the lives of people who are not in public life are almost destroyed. Um, and the, the destruction of these lives is justified on the, on the basis that a truth is being told about these people. But I see some of these uh, stories, I'm not talking about criminality, um, where you, you wonder what kind of moral compass is in the head of the editors and journalists who decide to attack an individual and just undermine their, their lives and then move on to the next. I wonder how you felt about that. Pretty bad is the answer. I, I can't do more than say what I said earlier, that Britain contains some of the best and some of the worst journalists in the world. Um, it is, um, it is an, as revolting a spectacle to those of us in the business as it is to those of you outside it uh, when newspapers, as they all too often do, behave incredibly badly. Um, I do think uh, one thing that always, bother, always bothers me is that uh, the readiness of the public to buy uh, newspapers, the simplest remedy, would be if the public ceased to buy the newspapers which peddle some of this absolute rubbish, not only rubbish, but pernicious rubbish, as you so rightly say. And uh, furthermore, I, I, I fervently hope uh, that those involved uh, in criminal activity in recent years, um, I think it's most unfortunate the police didn't uncover their doings years ago, and I hope they received long terms of imprisonment. 
but, but Max, just on this, I mean, you're absolutely, I th thank you for that, but um, on this issue, will the public carry on buying them? I mean, the truth is that if we still had uh, capital punishment, uh, you get big audiences for public executions. Um, but I don't think you could justify a policy decision in favour of public executions on the grounds that some people would turn up. I, I'm the first to say, but again, you know, you and I would be in the same position about this, that I can say that there is a whole spectrum, of the whole one end of the spectrum of British journalism for which there is no defence whatsoever, other than it is profitable to those who run it. But in the same way, there is um, a chunk of your trade too, oh, yeah. um, which I think you might also struggle to defend on the same terms. So are you I, saying I, that attack on character is never good journalism? Unless it is relevant to the story, there can be no case at all for um, simply destroying somebody's, uh, somebody's character, unless it is, it, you, you can, obviously you can make a case that uh, if they're involved in a story and that they, they if they're, I think, I think the distinction Jack has made is absolutely right between the way that you must expect to treat public figures and the way you, you treat private ones. Okay. Questions from the audience? Your time is not quite over yet, Max. Yes, we have one here, please. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I just wondered um, what you thought the system of regulation of the press that the political, cl political class is trying to introduce at the moment, how that will impact truth in public life. Well, not surprisingly, um Although I can understand uh, the, the feelings and the, and the sense of outrage that has driven the move for statutory regulation, I'd be very sorry to see things go that way. Because again, um, ideas about truth-telling are always going to be different depending on which side of the wire you're on. And um, I think there must always be that serious doubt um, whether uh, those in positions who are going to implement statutory regulation in the press are going to have the same view about where the public interest lies as, as um, some other people outside it all. Um, I mean, I would, I, I can I've been quite shocked by how many people I know whom I greatly respect uh, in politics who believe that statutory regulation has got to come. Um, but I do think it'll be a bad day because there's always been... Journalists have always had to have that anarchistic streak in them, and sometimes it goes too far. But I think it's a very good thing to have this um, disreputable um, group of people on the fringe of society who are asking questions that more respectable people don't want to ask. Now, I don't mean about people's private lives, I mean about public issues. And some of the best journalists I know have been, have been rather disreputable, drunken figures. Um, and I've always rather admired that. I mean, a lot of people in my trade think that I'm too respectable to be in this business, but I don't mean that. I mean, they think I'm too po-faced if they put it first. Um, but um, I think the cause of seeking after truth, uh, which we are in a sort of way struggling to do, will be injured by statute regulation. Mm, thank you. Uh, we have time for one more question. Yes, here. Um, it's, I think, a question for both Jack and... Um, for um, Max, uh, it's about telling the truth in times, changing times. So take the Profumo scandal 50 years ago. Um, would he have had to tell the lies that he did and have the terrible consequences he faced in today's world? Equally, MPs that were gay before 10 or 15 years ago, were they right to absolutely deny that they were because to have told the truth would have cost them their jobs. 
um, whereas today, of course, you know, it doesn't apply. So how do you actually make that distinction? Again, I think it's an extremely difficult one. But uh, again, one, one can say facetiously, uh, but not entirely facetiously, and I think Jack touched on this issue of hypocrisy. I remember hearing somebody once say that hypocrisy is the cement of middle-class life. And um, there is an element of truth in this, that again, Jack touched on this business, that if we all tell the truth to each other all the time, um, society would come to a grinding halt. Um, that um, there are moments when concealing or even sometimes telling fibs. I think it's the difference between doing so selfishly and unselfishly that one can actually um, be untruthful for honourable and decent motives, and I think we should recognise that. Uh, and certainly in the case of, yes, until society took a different view about um, homosexuals, um, that it would have been political suicide for um, a whole generation of very able politicians to, uh, to um, tell the truth about themselves. Uh, so I think the question you asked, my answer would be that, um, yes, it's one of those occasions when they were entitled to conceal their sexual orientation. Jack, um, I agree entirely. Uh, with Max on the second part about people who are gay, and they just, it, it was terrible, uh, the, the uh, life they had to lead uh, because of the pressure from society. On Profumo, well, look, um, that arose at the time, but let us say there was a foreign secretary who was having an affair with a cool girl, yeah. who in turn uh, was having an affair uh, with um, uh, one the of our the Russian naval attaché, or you know, somebody who was a respectable front of a terrorist organisation. I, I think if that came out, it could be tricky uh, for uh, <laughs> that politician's future. So they be never happened. Yeah, <laughs> they'd be tempted to lie, um, and then it'd be worse. Thank you very much, and thank you, Max. Let's give Max a round of applause. Robert, would you like to take the stand? Yes. <laughs> well... T hang on. <laughs> I'm going to ask you something. To the rest of us, you are in a godlike position because your truth, empirically verifiable truth, is to our enlightenment minds authoritatively true. You can show us the evidence for your assertions, and we will believe you. Is that what doing science feels like? Gloriously true? I've never heard such rubbish. <laughs> the greatest playwright of the 20th century, the greatest European playwright of the 20th century, in my view, was Luigi Perandello. And in, say, Personaggi in Churchill Dottori, in six characters in search of an author, his leading character says, my drama lies entirely in this one thing, in my being conscious that each one of us believes himself to be a single person. But it's not true. We are many people, many people according to the possibilities of being that are within us. So with one person, we're one person, and with others, we're somebody different. And all the time, we are under the illusion of being one and the same person with everybody. Now you see my tragedy, he goes on, because he's been caught in a brothel with his stepdaughter. Now, that 
may be a literary illusion, but actually it's a scientific illusion as well. And it leads, I hope, perhaps neatly to the idea of the poetry of science, which is why I quote it. What's interesting is that again and again when you look at science, for example, this extraordinary thing, the, the golden ratio, which of course occurs in every art form that we know, but also in nature, the Fibonacci pattern, you see it reflected in an extraordinary way. If you listen to uh, Reflet dans l'eau by Debussy, you hear the notation of that extraordinary reflection in the water, which is the ratio of 1 to 1, 1 1.6, and so on, up the scale and then down the scale again. And the question is really, is that by accident or is that by design? And certainly, perhaps in Bartok's case, it may be by design. But it's quite probable that in Debussy's case, it's not by design. It happens. And we see that again and again because our perception is essentially built into us in a way which actually changes our view of what is true. I've just been looking at the most amazing JNW Turner in Scotland yesterday, which is an extraordinary view of a harbour. It's a really fine painting. It knocks the socks of all other paintings in that part of the gallery. And the thing about the painting is that people complained about it because it was unfinished. It didn't represent what was seen as the truth. And yet, that painting is more truthful in many ways than all the other very accurate paintings around. So where does that get us? In the late 17th century, in about 1690, Nicholas Hartzerker, a Dutchman, drew what he thought he saw under the microscope. He'd visited, he'd visited Van Leeuwenhoek, the great microscopist in Amsterdam, and he rather, with some temerity, and rather foolishly, ex against advice, examined a droplet of his own semen under the microscope. He'd been told not to, because it was reprehensible. He was only 19, and what he saw was wriggling creatures under the microscope which made him feel that he had some kind of terrible disease, and for the next two years, he didn't use the microscope again. <laughs> but when he finally published his essay on optics, he drew what he thought he saw down the microscope, a sperm with a complete homunculus in the center of the sperm, an absolutely perfectly made man with a fontanel, with fingers, with toes, with legs, with testicles. Indeed, von Leibniz, the great mathematician who certainly was involved with the truth, said of this drawing down the microscope that if it had testicles, then inside those testicles would be little sperm, and inside those sperm would be little men again with testicles, half of them, and that would go right back to the beginning of creation because there was a blurring between the science and the poetry and the religious view. And that is something which I think is really important for us to accept. I don't believe there is any such thing as the truth. When Tanya Singer put a lover, not her lover, but a lover of another person in an MRI machine and had the other half of that love pair watch the electric shocks being given, the extraordinary thing that happens in the brain is that the pain pathways in the brain of the person receiving the electric shock is exactly the same as the person who loves that individual who's watching the experiment. So we are inevitably dominated by the consciousness which science is completely unable to explain. Indeed, it's only one of the many mysteries of science. When, and may I quote some poetry because perhaps in its 
original language, it might be better. Ki erei shomecho esvasecho, because it sounds better in the Hebrew than it does in the English. It's Psalm 8. When I look at the heavens, or when I perceive the heavens, I see the work of your fingers. And of course, that's the issue for us, because at every stage of science, we, I think, are dealing with uncertainty. That's why we do science. Just in the same way as people who are in prayer, or who are religious, or who are spiritual, but not necessarily religious, are seeking for that uncertainty to try and make things more certain. And the interesting thing is that that uncertainty is as important to our spirituality and our humanity as it is to the scientist. And incidentally, I would argue, ladies and gentlemen, that science and religion are actually at their most dangerous when they are certain. And interestingly, I think that is a problem for me at the moment because my good friend and colleague, Richard Dawkins, argues that science is the truth. I have a problem with that because I'm doing an experiment at the moment which was first accepted in nature some 10 years ago. We withdrew the paper when it was after it had been accepted because my colleague and I were not convinced that the data we had were right. It involved an experiment which had been repeated earlier but had never been managed again successfully, again and again, a very important experiment in genetics. We've now had that paper finally accepted again in a different journal after much more experiments, 13 years after the initial experiment was done. And my colleague yesterday withdrew the paper because she wants to do more experiments. <laughs> I don't think, ladies and gentlemen, there is anything that we can really say is completely truthful. And perhaps that lack of truth is something which is really valuable in our society, both in science and indeed in our humanity. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Wendy, would you like to start? Yes, I wanted to ask you how important it is for scientists to be good at writing in order to put over what they've learned as accurately and comprehensibly as possible. Well, Max said it. Max talked about the passion of the journalist. The passion of the journalist is the same as the passion of the scientist and indeed the passion of a good politician. I think it's essential, of course. Um, sadly, of course, many passionate people may be very good at the passion but not so good at the communication. Yeah. Max? Are we um, layman, naive in our approach to science, um, in believing that somehow um, irrefutable truth is more readily to be found in, in science than it is in art, for example, or in nature. Is that really what you're saying yourself, Robert? Or, um... I'm going to make a V-sign, Max. <laughs> we know that there are three dimensions, four if you include time. And the interesting thing about that, of course, is that if you're an ant walking in another dimension through this one dimension of the paper and you come across this pillar of my finger, you have no conception of that dimension. Now, modern string theory would argue that there are many more dimensions than four dimensions. So the problem is 
that how can we perceive those dimensions when we can't see them, just as we cannot see the dark matter, just as we cannot see the edges of the universe. In my view, I think that's always going to be a problem in science. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I think it's very important for science to be done with the same kind of humi humility that you'd expect any other occupation. But unfortunately, sometimes we tend to think that we are rulers of the universe that we don't understand. Is that, um, so the importance is imagination, perhaps, to imagine something and then the possibility of perceiving it? Yes. Is it? Absolutely. In 1905, Albert Einstein imagined the idea that light was particulate, the photon. What's extraordinary, we all now use that, of course, in our everyday life, because all of you have got a CD or a DVD machine. Some of you have had a laser to the back of the eye. You will be using the internet down a fiber optic cable. It took a hundred years before that imagination becomes a fruition, a reality, the modern laser, one of the greatest inventions, which depends entirely on something which was first posited and imagined a hundred years ago. Wow. Jack. Uh, Robert, you said towards the end of um, your wonderful five minutes opening address that there was nothing in your, your view that was completely truthful, or worse that effect, but does it, are you therefore saying that there is nothing which is completely untruthful? How interesting. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure I'm competent to answer that question. There's nothing that is not untruthful. Well, I think it does come back to this notion of perception, doesn't it? I mean, I think truth is part of that uh, perception that we have. For example, we know, um, I, I'm wondering a little bit with your question, because I think it's a very difficult one to answer. But, um, I, I mean, I think many scientists will disagree with me. that there is a, They will say there is something which is provable, there's an experiment, you can do it, and that's it. But to my mind, that may be a truth, but it's a half-truth. It's not the whole story. And I think that that blurring is actually always there in science. And the problem we have as scientists, actually come back to the untruthful part, is that when we gaze down the microscope, for example, I've looked at a stem cell derived from an embryo and seen it beating under the microscope because we've transformed it into a heart cell, which might treat one third of this audience in maybe 10 years time if they have heart disease. That notion of absolute wonderment when you've done that, that notion of achievement becomes something which is glorious but also shocking because of course it is seductive and you run the risk of course of feeling much more important and much more powerful than you really are. Mm, thank you very much. Well now, questions from the audience. I'm going to uh, identify two. There's someone right at the back here. I think your um, colleague definitely did the right thing um, when she withdrew her research paper because she didn't have enough um, evidence. But obviously, um, the field of um, scientific academic research is now more competitive than ever. Um, and do you think there is more pressure on scientists before to publish new, new so-called groundbreaking research without rigorous um, verification um, and experimentation? Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want something which is truthful, 
I would suggest the word yes is truthful in that context. <laughs> no further comment. Uh, and over here, then. Um, given the Western scientific um, facts, as it were, are based on Western ideas and um, Western empirical concepts, would you say that the, despite the advantages of the spread of Western science, um, we're at risk of destroying other cultures' ideas of truth and beliefs that are not based on these Western um, concepts? It would be lovely to think that science was a Western activity. It's actually an Asian activity at the moment. It was Western, and before that, it was Arabic. And before that, it was probably Greek. Science moves around the world depending on where the education and the power, the ability to do it goes on. I don't think science is Western. I would argue that there's probably going to be much more science going on in China in the near future. Now, whether that will change Chinese values, it's difficult to say. But I would argue, of course, that all science may lead to technology and all technology will have advantages and invariably disadvantages for society. And therefore, of course, that will include some of its impact on cultures. Thank you very much. I think we're going to move on to Wendy now. In your poem, Present, you wrote, O oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Nana, it's just what I wanted. Is the truth of poetry the deepest truth of all? I really don't know if it's the deepest truth of all or quite what we mean by deep truth. But I do think that truth is very important in poetry. But the kind of truth that's very important is about the poet being honest with herself or himself. T.S. Eliot said, one of the great permanent causes of error in writing poetry is the difficulty of distinguishing between what one really feels and what one would like to feel. Now, I find when I'm writing a poem that if it doesn't work, and I say this to students all the time, if the poem doesn't work, um, the question to ask yourself is, how honest am I being? And this applies, I mean, not just if you're writing about your own life, but if you're writing about a tree, that if the feeling in the poet, poem is falsified, exaggerated, prettified, takes on the voice of some borrowed authority, the poem won't work. I was telling Claire um, before th this about a friend of mine who was in a rather unsatisfactory love affair and kept trying to write poems about how great it was. And of course, they just wouldn't work. And they wouldn't work because it wasn't great. And I know sometimes when I'm writing, I do sometimes find myself writing things that I would actually prefer not to have recognised. But I think when I'm writing a poem, I'm looking for the truth. Um, Les Murray, the great Australian poet Les Murray, quote, he quoted in a poem, he quotes Huckleberry Finn, you can't pray a lie, said Huckleberry Finn. You can't poe one either. And I think that's right. Um, the poem won't work if, um, if you're not being honest. 
Um, of course, being honest with ourselves is, is not easy. Um, and we vary in the degree of ability we have to be honest with ourselves. But I do think that um, being in touch with your feelings and trying hard to be honest about them is, is something that's very important in, in poetry. Is that, I haven't really got a lot, lot more speech to make. I could read that poem of mine. I'd love, that would be lovely. Okay, this is a poem um, where it's about a romantic meeting. <laughs> and um, when I, my first drafts of this poem didn't work at all. And I, the thing was that during this romantic meeting, something unromantic had occurred. And when I put the unromantic thing in the poem as well, I thought it worked much better. My love got in the car and sat on my banana, my unobserved banana and my organic crisps. We spoke of life and love, his rump on my banana, my hidden soft banana and my forgotten crisps. He kissed me more than once as he sat on that banana, that newly squashed banana and those endangered crisps. We looked up at the stars. Beneath him, my banana, my saved-from-lunch banana and my delicious crisps. At last, I dropped him off and noticed the banana. Alas, a ruined banana and sadly damaged crisps. You'd think he would have felt a fairly large banana. And if not the banana, the lumpy bag of crisps. But he's the kind of man who'll sit on a banana for hours, watch your banana and guard your bag of crisps. He waved goodbye and smiled, benign as a banana. I love you, daft banana, said I, and ate the crisps. <laughs> This other, have I got time to read this other Definitely. poem we discussed? Yes. This is because this is, as I following a scientist, um, I thought that this, this is, um, might be interesting. Now, this was actually inspired by a story in the Daily Telegraph. Um, they'd been talking to a scientific researcher and um, about some, some research they were going to do on people's responses to birdsong. And it said, a great deal of anecdotal evidence suggests, suggests that we respond positively to birdsong. And I thought, yeah, right. And the poem is called Evidence. Centuries of English verse suggest the self-same thing. A negative response is rare when birds are heard to sing. What's the use of poetry, they ask? Well, here's a start. It's anecdotal evidence about the human heart. Oh, well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Jack, would you like to ask a question? Wendy, uh, you, you spoke about poets trying to get at the truth, and you uh, mentioned uh, some instruction, illumination, that uh, T.S. Eliot uh, had offered. Uh, Eliot, in um, one of the, the opening part of Burnt Norton, um, also said, uh, go, 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 said the bird, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Yes. And do you agree with Eliot there? Uh, and if that is the case, doesn't it mean great difficulties for poets well, when it comes to truth-telling? 
I think um, one of the things poetry does is, is help us come to terms with the grim realities of human existence. An awful lot of poems are about death. It has been said that death is the only subject for poetry. It's been said that love and death are the only two subjects for poetry. Um, but I think writing poems can be painful. And that one of the things um, that, I mean, if I think, you know, when there's strong emotion, I know there's likely to be a poem there. But I think also I'm very grateful to the poets who have could have gone into their pain um, about, well, often about death, but, and um, about the nature of human existence and have somehow brought it to order for us. And I think, I mean, someone said about Larkin, he faces the worst on our behalf and brings it to order. Um, and I, th I mean, I think Houseman, you know, Houseman with his miserable poems that make me cry, but somehow he brings it to order, he puts it in a shape, it kind of helps. Max. Going back to your first remarks, Wendy, do you think we could say that while there are sometimes arguments for not telling the truth, or even sometimes for lying to others, um, the absolute crime is not to attempt to tell the truth to oneself? Yes. Absolutely. And the thing about, you know, of course there are problems to do with hurting people and so on. You don't have to, I don't publish everything I write. I mean, the important thing is to be honest in the poem. And then the question of whether it's going to see the light of day comes later. But um, I think, you know, you don't hold back for fear of hurting your mother. You just don't publish the poem while your mother's still alive. Yeah? <laughs> 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 In, we did a survey, and um, lots and lots and lots of people admitted to lying, um, as well as saying they didn't believe their politicians. But the, the most often cited reason for lying was not to hurt the feelings of others. Yes. That was yes. 89% uh, or something, that was why people lied. But they lied a lot. And some writers are completely ruthless about the feelings of others, actually, and I'm shocked by some of the things that some writers do, some memoirists and so on. But, um, I mean, when I've written a poem where anyone's recognisable, I've either suppressed it like I did with my mother, or, you know, but if it's not, if it's not a nasty poem, but just the person is recognisable, I will check with them before I publish it. Like the banana poem? Yeah. Well, you know, that, it doesn't say who it is, does it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that person, that person knew all about that poem before it was published. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Robert. Wendy, I, I want to know, in your opinion, whether you think that um, good poetry can be untruthful. I'm thinking, for example, of some of Marlowe's po uh, poetry, for example. Marlowe? Marlowe. Marlowe, mm. right. Um, Where some of it's very fine verse, but it's often clearly not very truthful. I don't know. I mean, without having a particular poem in front of me, it's difficult for me right. to. Um, it's difficult for me to comment on that. I mean, what I'm saying. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure if what I'm saying anyway is true. But I've been going round since I knew I was going to be in this, saying to people, in what sense is Paradise Lost true? So I'm not sure, you know, whether what I'm saying applies to epic poetry. I think, you know, what I know about is lyrical poetry, and I don't know which poems of Marlowe's you're referring to. I was, mean, this, was this the face that launched a thousand ships? Right. In um, Faustus, for example, that right. speech, which is poetry. Oh, well, it's in a play, isn't it? Yes. 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 It's verse. Um, and so in what way do you think it's not true? Well, does it really describe a real emotion? Oh, well, I think in a play you'd have to ask if it was true to the character of the person who was speaking the words, wouldn't you? 
Um, I suppose in a play you can have someone, you can invent a character who isn't telling the truth. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I can't. I haven't got a better answer to that. But Thank can you I sit very down much. Now? You can come and sit down. Yes, and um, let's see if there are questions from the audience. All right, so now we can open the floor out to questions to all of our speakers. Um, I think it's true to say that we've got, we've got four very different accounts and uh, 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 people here. And uh, it will be interesting if it's possible to think of questions. It's a challenge which all of the, our speakers could answer um, or more than one of our speakers could answer. Um, I did have a question for Robert Winston, but I suppose it can be general as well, was that you made the statement that um, there's nothing is completely true. And, and I was wondering if that statement was based on just empirically based truths, or was that general truths? Because I'd be interested to know if you believe that there can be truths that aren't based on empirical evidence, but on reason and logic and um, morality alone. Well, in order to make a debating point, I do tend to exaggerate somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think so much of the time we claim things which are true, which, uh, you know, which affect our lives. I mean, for example, during the embryology bill and the embryology issue, there was a general feeling about people who were not very keen on embryology that life began at fertilization. That was a widely held view, widely stated. The problem is that Kono comes along in Japan, takes a mammalian egg and pricks it, simply pricks it with a pin to activate it, and it ends up as a mouse which implants in the mother's uterus and, in fact, is born and is a normal mouse. But, of course, you could argue that it's a figment of imagination because it was not ever a mouse that saw a sperm. And so, of course, what happens in science again and again as did with Hartzerka, new things come along. We have to change our views of our ethics and our society. With Hartzerka, we learnt, for example, that there isn't a little man in the sperm, eventually, when we have better microscopes. And when we understood that, then, of course, the loss of seed or the destruction of the semen was not seen like murder any longer. But don't we all abuse the word um, truth constantly? Truth is very often used to mean what we ourselves happen to choose to believe. And even if those words in the American Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, an awful lot of people would not necessarily regard this as objective truth. They were statements of opinion by the drafters. And again and again, our everyday lives, and as soon as you hear um, dare I say, either a politician or a journalist say, to speak frankly. You know perfectly well they're going to do nothing of the sort. Um, so th the word truth and what is truth, we have to be very cautious about, uh, about uh, that definition, don't we, in all walks of life, Robert? Hmm? Yeah, I will yeah. answer. Yeah. Does anyone else want to pick up that uh, question? So, aha, uh -huh, one here and one here. So first here and then here, please. Thanks. Yes, I was a bit puzzled by Professor Winston's uh, reference to truth in science. Surely it's certainty that, that one is searching for and verifiability in science. But whether that's true or not is quite a different issue. I'm sorry, just that your last sentence was a bit indistinct, forgive me. Uh, um, yes, uh, what one is looking for in science is uh, certainty and verifiability, not necessarily truth. Aren't they different things? 
Yes, they are different things. Of course they are. But the problem really is that very often our certainties lead to our perception of what is true, and that's the problem for us. Of course, there will be certain experiments where you can clearly show that something has happened. But very often, actually, as you reinterpret that further on with better knowledge, that happening changes. Classic example, of course, would be in quantum mechanics. It was impossible to consider until the last century that, for example, light was particulate. Um, we still have huge problems with quantum theory, certainly quantum gravity, um, the issues of what, uh, the extraordinary issue about the beginning of the universe, the first 10 to the minus 43 seconds, for example, um, when in fact, according to modern physics, the universe was smaller than a pinhead. Um, I, I think, I think I don't want to go back on what I said about the truth in that respect, because I think so much of the, tr the truths that we have are actually and remain uncertain. Uh, quantum biology is going to be very much more on the cards in the, in the near future. I think what we're seeing inside cells, myself at the moment, is a very good example of that, where one cell will react in a particular way, but a series of cells won't, and therefore you bring in the statistics to show what is most likely to happen. And of course, that's interesting in itself. The likelihood of something happening in an experiment um, is absolutely valid to the scientist, and it's relevant, of course, to our society, because we can use that likelihood to make a new drug. But it may not cure the cancer. Thank you, yes, over, uh, over here, and then this chap here. Hi, um, I do have a question for the four of you. Um, I want to expand on what Mr. Straw said as an example at the beginning, um, on the economic implications by actually telling the truth on fixed interest rates. I would like to expand, for instance, on someone not telling the truth about someone really being obese and not telling them because they're fat only because they want to be sympathetic or perhaps telling someone who is dying that they're going to heaven because they, they want to console the person. And that goes back to what um, Wendy um, stated as well, saying they want, they want to hear sometimes what they want to, to really believe in hearing. And wouldn't that still be unethical going to uh, Mr. Hastings and uh, Professor Winston that e even, even though there they, they they might be some positive in that, it's still unethical. And on the, other, on the other side, wouldn't the truth be, in a sense, creating skepticism and creating uh, creativity in seeking, in ways of seeking truth as per your professions? Who wants to start? Thank well, you. I mean, Thank you. Thank you very much. Do, do you want me to start? Yeah, Look, yeah. I, I'm glad you, you, you raised this because your question, sir, illustrated the, the differentiation that I, that I was trying to get across between uh, factual statements, which are reasonably certain. I mean, we have shared uh, uh, assumptions about how arithmetic works, for example, which I think are unlikely to be seriously challenged in lifetime of anybody here and anyway they provide a, some handholds for uh, our life um, so sort of I say factual statements judgments uh, where you may have to lie about a judgment you have formed for, 
for example, over whether to devalue until the moment you come to announce that, because the consequences are much worse. And feelings. And um, I've made no judgments about people's relative weight uh, in the audience here, but if I were to stand at the door as people are going out and say, well, I'm not shaking hands with you because you're fat, um, I, th I think people would think I was a really odd bloke uh, and that I was being offensive. Uh, and that's a, a very good example of where you, or I suggest none of us, um, should say what we may feel because it is gratuitous to say it uh, and it's offensive to people's feelings and produces uh, no um, sort of social product at all. I, uh, I do recommend if there's anybody here who has not had the pleasure of reading Saki's short story, The Woman Who Told the Truth, on the terrible things that happened to her, <laughs> which you all know the concluding line, he was a good cook, as she was a good cook, as cooks go, but as cooks go she went. Um, that uh, the woman who told the truth says it all about what Jack has just been saying, about how society would come to a grinding halt if we all told each other the truth every day. I, I, I think you raise um, a very important ethical point which we haven't covered in our debate. Um, I am medically qualified, so as a doctor, there is now a requirement almost written in how the health service runs um, to tell the truth. And indeed, telling the truth to a patient is part of respecting that person's autonomy, which is one of the key of the four ethical principles for a patient. Respect their autonomy, do no harm, try to do good, and try to arrive at a just solution for their medical problem. I must tell you, that I have lied to patients again and again. And if I was in active practice, I would still lie to patients. There are times, actually, when it might seem very wrong to be paternalistic, but I don't think it necessarily is wrong. I think sometimes the truth is not something that one should be telling people. And I would refer you to one thing that happened in my early career, when a man with lung cancer in his bed at home when I was doing a GP locum in Southend was dying of lung cancer. And he asked me if he was dying and I said no, he wasn't dying. And I don't regret that. Would you still do that? Yes, but, of course I would. But aren't we better at hearing these sorts of I don't think. Now? I think it depends. I think there's a judgment that we have to make as human beings. It's part of our humanity. And I don't think that can be controlled by the state or by a code of medical ethics because these codes, like every other code, to some extent, are faulty. I think what is needed to practice any kind of good relationships with a person is to make sound judgments about how you handle that relationship, whether you're a doctor, a scientist, a politician, a poet, whatever. Y yes, but you might also look to the person who's in receipt of what you're about to say and think perhaps they it's up to them to decide how they take it. Sometimes it's better. And mostly it will be. Mostly, of course, it will be. Because don't people absolutely hate being lied to, which is why. No, they don't hate being lied to. You, you haven't sat in a doctor's surgery with people who are absolutely desperate, destroyed by the condition which they have, as I have. And sometimes you actually don't necessarily 
tell them the truth, you make a judgment about the right story. For example, in reproductive medicine, I've dealt with people whose infertility has been so serious in their family life that I've actually had to take a decision about whether it would be better not to treat them. There might have been a 1% or 2% chance of IVF working, but there comes a point when the doctor might need to take a decision perhaps to refuse that treatment or to give that treatment. And that is a judgment which is very fine, a huge responsibility. And I don't think that can be really interpreted by somebody who's telling you how your ethical code should work. No, but I hope you would want to tell the of person course, the truth about would, their chances. One would want to tell the truth about their chances. Of course one would. But actually, that's not always necessarily what is necessary. Right. When did you want to... There are mm, times I've thought... Just, just, just a moment. Sorry. Do you want to actually want to follow... Um, I've noticed that people with cancer often die a bit sooner than their doctors told them they would, and I think this is the doctor being kind so as not to frighten them. It seems to me there's no harm in that at all. Well, of course, you know, each individual, there will be many, uh, most patients who are dying will need to be told that they're dying so they can compare, prepare in the proper way for death. Yes. But there will be other people who may not be, it may not be appropriate. Yeah. Um, I made a television program 15 years ago about Herbie, a German living in Ireland who had an advancing tumour in his abdomen and that, um, that film which took up a whole programme of over an hour uh, showed very clearly uh, that again there's a blurring of the truth of what actually was happening to him and I think that in the end that man had a very satisfactory and happy conclusion to a very difficult problem. But Robert, it is what you're saying, or part of what you're saying, that there are times when truth and hope are not reconcilable, yes. and that there is a duty to offer hope. Exactly. Well, it may be, you can use that, certainly. I think, I think truth and hope are not reconcilable, certainly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the difficulty, of course, is how you avoid being uh, so arrogant in the decision that you make, and that requires, I think, a great deal of humility on the part of the practitioner. Yeah. But there's a one, one issue in, in the context of history. Uh, I'm always aware, I read a book a few years ago about Churchill during the war. There is no question that if Churchill had told the British people the truth in 1940, he would have told them that there was absolutely almost nil chance of winning the war, and the best thing to do was make the best peace that could have been made with Hitler. Um, now, we know that triumphantly uh, um, he was able to, he did not tell them the truth, and the story had a happy ending. One of the things that seems to me most unfortunate is that sometimes statesmen today look at that precedent and in quite different circumstances to suit their own aims, uh, they will see grounds for deceit when actually we could, we'd be better served with the truth and deciding when the truth and when hope um, yes. are the right things to offer. A very difficult question. But Max, th those, those truths are so difficult, aren't they? For example, you know, we've just had a debate three weeks ago on going into Syria to try to do what we think is right for chemical warfare. The problem we have actually is, if we're brutally honest, is that we've developed those weapons ourselves and we've probably sold them to the Syrians. I don't know. Jack may know, but I, but I don't know. You don't know We didn't solve that. Sell, but we've we certainly, we've certainly experimented, we've certainly experimented oh, yeah, with those sure. weapons. Portland. And I mean, yeah. some of us have been to Portland Down. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and of course one signs the official secrets and all the rest of it. Now, I don't know whether or not the weapons that are used in Syria were, were uh, uh, developed in Porton Down, but it's very probable those weapons were developed in one of the countries which is protesting about what's happening to the Syrian population. But, uh, well, uh, that's very possible. Um, however, that didn't, it seems to me, Robert, if I say so, that wasn't directly uh, related to the decision we faced on August the 29th, no, of which, which, which no, of was did we go to war or didn't, and I'm glad we come to the decision we did. But could I just come back to you, this issue about telling the truth to individuals? Um, my work with individuals is less important than yours as a med medical practitioner and much more prosaic, but I, in my advice service, have to deal with people with a lot of distress, and I have done over the last 30 years, and one of the things I've found over the years I've been doing this, where I uh, have to give people bad news, typically that they've reached the end of the road in trying to resolve some issue, and they've simply got to come to terms with the fact that they may be have to be deported, uh, that uh, they have lost a legal case, that they will be thrown out of the house or so on. I mean, pretty unpleasant uh, choices. What I've I found over the years that, that uh, it is better in those circumstances, not talking about life and death, but better to tell people the truth and the unvarnished truth. Uh, often I have to say to them, don't waste any more money on going to a lawyer, uh, because I'm just telling you, you've reached the end of the road, uh, and the best thing for your future is to come to terms with this. And I used to find that quite difficult, because I didn't want to hurt their feelings. But now uh, I've it's not that I do want to hurt their feelings, but I've actually found with experience that I hurt their feelings less by trying to bring them up sharp with a, a reality. And there may be tears, but they, I mean, in, almost invariably, I know from what they then say, is they're glad I've said that, because others have been beating around the bush. Um, I, yes, I, you may, and then Wendy, yes. I, I want to come, I, we're in a church, so, let me confess to an act which was reprehensible. Many years ago, before... In public, or do you want to make a point <laughs> later? Many, many years ago, the wife of an Arab sheik came from the Middle East and visited me in, at Hammersmith Hospital with an appalling history which led me to believe there was absolutely no chance of her having a baby. Her medical record, she'd had repeated failures of surgery, she'd had a vitro fertilization, there was zero chance of it working. She said to me, look, you know, if you don't operate on me and do your microsurgery, which is so well known, my husband will divorce me. And I agonized over this for a week. I wouldn't treat her, and I agonized over it for a week or two. And I asked my team what they thought, and nobody really came to a conclusion. Finally, very reluctantly, I agreed to do just a laparoscopy, to put a telescope, which is quite dangerous with that degree of damage inside her abdomen. What I saw, was horrendous. It was worse even than I imagined. And I took the telescope out, we woke her up, and I said, look, you know, you really need to find some way to come to terms. The following week, she came back to my surgery. She said, I want an operation. I can't go back to my husband without a scar in my abdomen. Now, what do you do as a doctor in that situation? I gave her an anesthetic and opened her abdomen. What I saw was horrendous, and I sewed it up sent her away, said, you know, I've fiddled around, maybe it'll work, knowing absolutely there was no chance of it working. 22 months later, I'm in my clinic 
when I'm told by the nurse there's a lady outside who's come in at the end of the clinic who wants to see me and this woman comes in in a long flowing robe and she says as you predicted I am now pregnant <laughs> and it's the same lady who's so, pre so pregnant that she uses this flowing robe and of course the fact that she's an Arab sheik's wife to get on an aircraft because she's now in labor and she wants to be delivered in the place that she trusts she did not hear what I said to her she did not take on board what I said in spite of the English and that actually is the problem with medical truths there's no such thing as truth is that a true statement you don't have Wendy, you want um, to... You, you did mention the question of, 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 of telling people they're going to heaven when they die. as a kind of white lie. Yeah. And, I mean, what I think about that is that if, if someone believes they're going to heaven when they die, I never would try to... I would never try to argue them out of that, although I don't believe it myself. Um, because I think it makes... I mean, my husband believes it, and I'm really glad, because if I'm with him when he dies, it will make it so much easier. And the fact is that... If someone believes they're going to heaven when they die, they're never going to find out they were wrong. So in that sense, perhaps they do, just by dying in that belief, they do. But if I were to try and write a poem about, you know, saying I believed in it, it, would, it wouldn't work. So. There's somebody who's been waiting very patiently to speak. I'm sorry. We've heard the problems of uh, defining truth. Would the word integrity be better used? And is that not what we're looking for in our professions? Thank you. What about uh, each person giving their view on what integrity is? What integrity means in your context? Wendy. Wendy. I think I've said it already, really. Um, it's, it's, being as honest as you, it's being as honest as you can. Um, but actually, it's the nature of, of writing poems that you have to be as honest as you can, because otherwise poems won't work. Do, do you think yours is a lu luxury? You're, in, you're not in the position that Robert's in, for example. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, if I have a bad day. I mean, even when I was a teacher, I mean, a bad day was not a good thing. But I should say, thank goodness I'm not a brain surgeon having a bad day. Um, yes, of course. <laughs> and a poet having a bad day, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jack, you can say something now. Are you? Uh, no, I, I mean, it, it, integrity is, is uh, slightly different from telling the truth, but, but telling the truth is part of integrity. And I think that probably what, one of the things that people seek uh, in people in public life as well as in private life is, is integrity, which, by which I guess we mean honesty uh, and authenticity, and above all, being true to yourself. Because if you're not true to yourself, a bit like the poet, um, then uh, you can't communicate truths to other people. I would have thought, I mean, you, I agree it's a better word in many ways. It's about, it's all about the question we should ask ourselves, and I thought, is who do we respect in life, both in public life and in our own lives? Um, and the people we respect are the people we trust. Who are the people we are most likely to trust? And the answer is those, I would have thought, who we can see try pretty hard to tell as much of the truth as they can. It's people who are we're all aspiring to truth with varying degrees of success, and those whom we respect most are those who we probably feel come closest to it, aren't they? So, Robert, are we aspiring to something which doesn't exist? Yes, I, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think integrity is about being honest, and in the context of being the sort of people that we are on the, on the podium, I think it's then trying to do your best 
I think that really is as far as you can go. Um, it's that sense of justice which is so important. And trying to, I think, look at your own autonomy in relation to the person's autonomy in front of you. A final question. Yes, thank you. Um, you're all in positions of authority in your different professions. Um, and I was just wondering, with the age of information, the internet, um, and sort of so much free-flowing um, information, um, do you find that your authority as truth seekers is, or truth tellers is diminished in any way? I think one of the most depressing things about the internet is um, if you think that newspapers contain many things that aren't true, in which you're right, the internet contains far, far more. And one of the most depressing experiences, somebody once said to me, have you looked up your own Wikipedia entry? And I did, I was absolutely stunned. Half the things in it aren't true. Um, I tried to contact Wikipedia and I said, but a lot of this isn't true. They said, sorry, this is how we do things. And the internet, it is a huge problem that whatever the limitations of what we'll call the conventional media, um, there is a huge amount of information out there, but there is also a huge amount of stuff that is inimical to truth. And there's an awful lot of terrible poetry, but I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I've got any authority, and I don't know if it's undermined by that. M I mean, my problem with the internet is my poems being pirated and reproduced on the internet, and so people don't need to buy my books because it's all there free on the internet. And I wish I hadn't told this big room full of people that. loud. <laughs> Robert. I have no doubt that the internet is one of the ten great inventions of the last 50 years because it's liberating, it democratizes what we do, and it is a threat as well. And we have to, as with all technologies, as I said before, there's a downside and an advantage. The advantage outweighs the downside. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think it's a fantastic... Uh, as, I mean, this is hardly original, but uh, as important as the invention of printing. It's changed how people relate to those quotes in authority. It's made the world flatter. Uh, it's accelerated the loss of deference. But in, I think it's also very paradoxical because, and there's a clue in what Wendy just said, that there's very bad poetry and good poetry. I think it's also made people um, much more anxious to find those they can trust. And, and if you look, think in the commercial world, um, the internet, in a strange kind of inchoate way, has made branding even more important. Because uh, people, there's a limited number of, of institutions which people can, can trust, commercial institutions, which are called brands. And the same is true, uh, I think, in other f walks of life, including the media and including uh, in politics. So. Uh, yeah, do I wake up in the morning thinking the internet has undermined the uh, authority uh, which uh, politicians uh, deserve? No, I don't in the least. Um, and I think, uh, and it's not abolished deference either or respect, it's just changed uh, the, the way those operate. Thank you. Well, well I'm in a moment, I'm just going to ask um, each of our speakers to leave you with one thought, one lasting thought, which you can chew over as you make your way home. Uh, 
But before I do, I'd just like to thank Intelligence Squared for uh, the opportunity to work with them and, for, um, to, and to thank you for being such a fantastic audience. And to those of you who are brave enough to ask questions in this big echoey space to this big audience, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for coming and thank you, Intelligence Squared. Well, the best thing I can think of is this is my favorite quotation about being an artist, and it's by the composer Schubert. I give to the world what I have in my heart, and that is the end of it. Mm. <laughs> oh, you want me to say something profound? Sorry. <laughs> um, something else profound. Um, Gosh, but uh, well, I'm just reminded. I don't know why this comes to mind. That that um, constructivist film, The Golem. Do you remember in the 1920s, um, where the rabbi creates this monster which um, walks around and is threatening to humans. Uh, this this uh, a bit like a Frankenstein monster, but it's a peaceful monster. And on his forehead is written in that film, a German film, um, Emmet the truth. And when the truth is ripped off, the monster dies. Max. We should aspire to tell as much truth as we can without hurting others. Jack. Um, yeah, here's, profound or not, uh, politicians are human beings. <laughs> 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 well, thank you very much to our panellists. It's been an absolutely marvellous discussion. Jack, Max, Robert and Wendy, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.